0: Uh, it's up about a half of 1% today to 62,000, let's call it 700, 62,700. Coinbase Global, the big initial offering yesterday via a direct listing. It is up 2% today after a wild day of trading yesterday, but it's up 2% today. What we need here is a little perspective on all things crypto. And to do that, we turn to Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's a Bloomberg opinion columnist and host of of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, a fantastic podcast. All right, Barry, Coinbase yesterday. A lot of folks were out there with a narrative that Coinbase uh, was a validation point for the crypto market. Is that how you viewed it?
2: I I was more intrigued by the fact that it was a direct listing bypassing the usual IPO process. And you have folks, especially out in Silicon Valley, people like Bill Gurley of Benchmark Capital, who have been saying, hey, why are we having big brokerage firms and and Wall Street capturing or mispricing so much of the value of these new companies? Hold that aside. Maybe that's a little too inside baseball.
1: I love Um, that. (laughs) But
2: but the... uh, what, what Coinbase validates is that there is now a credible way uh, to deal on an institutional basis with holding crypto. So some of the studies have shown 20, 25, maybe even 30% of all mined coins have either been lost or are locked in uh, password protected uh, things where <laughs> people can't me. access it. And and you know, imagine if a third of brokerage accounts,
1: sorry, you your money is gone. You're purposely You're rubbing salt in my wounds here, Barry. Uh, <laughs> how, how much? Yeah. How much Bitcoin have you lost somewhere? How many nine eleven? I, I don't know. And even if I knew, I I couldn't tell you because my wife already wants to kill me. So whenever <laughs> right. she asks me, like, how much is it? I'm like, it's a very small amount. Don't worry. It's uh, the GT3
2: <laughs> fully mocked up for the yeah. track for you. You, you It's definitely you be in Nürburgring. Nerf it's definitely that. It's definitely on a, that much. On a and I was issued basis.
1: a password by blockchain wallet, and uh, I f- promptly forgot about it. You know, it was 2012. What, what so, did I know? <laughs> so Coinbase
2: is what solves, theoretically anyway, solves that problem because you don't have to. I mean, I've heard stories about people etching passwords on on metal bars and then sticking that... Into a uh, into a bank vault, and, and then you have to worry: is the melting point of that steel high enough in case the bank burns down? Oh, I man. mean, think about how crazy that is,
1: dude. Matthew um, Mellon used to do. He Matthew Mellon used to put it on. He used to go and buy laptops, and then put it on them in cold storage, and then go and buy safes and bring them to friends' houses, and then put it in the safe in a friend's house. You know, so like, uh, some people get very. That's why I like the. Um, uh, equity-traded product that CoinShares does. You can buy right. uh, Bitcoin through them, and they they just hold it in custody for you.
2: As someone who has had uh, computers and laptops going back to my Mac Classic in 1988, hmm. I-, I wouldn't want to put a billion dollars of value on something as completely unreliable as a laptop in cold storage. Talk about yeah. a recipe for disaster. It's no hard pass.
1: Barry, I want to get to... Um, You know, I've been working here at Bloomberg since January of 2000, and um, I think I started paying attention like six or seven years later. Uh, I remember distinctly hearing arguments for uh, the the continued market run-up in 2006, 2007, that there was so much cash on the sidelines, and I was... Totally, uh, you know, sold hook, line and sinker on this. Man, if there's two trillion dollars in cash on the sidelines, then this market has a lot further to run. I've never heard the end of that argument. No matter what, there's always so much cash on the sidelines. What is this coming from? Well, it's
2: one of those tropes that glib brokers use to talk people into buying or trading stocks. Look, there's always cash on the sidelines. Number one, that doesn't go away. And if you want to talk about cash that matters, you're either talking about the velocity of money, how fast cash is moving through the economy. And as we've seen in 2020, the velocity of money was very low, even as the market rocketed up to new highs. So it can't be that. And and then there are other things to look at. Um, the AAII does a study uh, on a monthly basis of how much cash – is allocated within individual portfolios to stocks versus cash. And at peaks, it's too much stock, and at, and at lows, it's too much cash. But, you know, you get a signal from that once every five or ten years. It's nothing that's, that's reliable. The one simple way to think about this is, all right, so all that cash on the sidelines, what's going to happen with that? Well, Matt, if I'm going to buy 1,000 shares of Amazon from you, I have cash, you have stock, we engage in that transaction through through our Robinhood account. Now I have 1,000 shares of Amazon, and and you have $600,000 yes. in cash. The same exact amount of money is still on the sidelines. For every buyer of stock, there is a seller um, who gets the cash. And so the cash <laughs> on the sidelines never changes. It's just ownership of the cash in the equity swaps hands. It, By the way, it does it the dry powder...
1: Does the dry powder article, uh, uh, argument for private equity hold up for you? Is that a different story?
2: Um, so if you're talking about either private equity or venture capital or or things like that, you're really talking about a very different asset class that is attracting capital because it's successful. Let, let's use venture capital as even better example because private equity is kind of hard to determine what's private equity and what's – um, traditional syndication and M&A and other stuff like that. Venture capital started out in the 60s and 70s as a way to, hey, how can we work with the Defense Department and others to steer money to these important technologies where, if you remember or have read about Sputnik, the like U.S. was behind Russia. And as, as these companies became more and more successful, uh, uh, remember, semiconductors and integrated circuits is something that was produced by um, the Apollo program and the Defense Department, and uh, uh, same with the Internet. Only got 20 and, and seconds. And so as, as more and more of these product things attracted more successful returns, more money flowed to that sector.
1: All right. Fascinating conversation, which we will have to continue. we got to kick off our car show, uh, too. You mentioned the GT3. Yes. I really idea. want one. <laughs> um, really excited for a naturally aspirated boxer still in Porsche's lineup. Now I want to bring in former senior advisor at the U.S. Treasury Department, Dan Katz. He is also a Bloomberg opinion contributor, and he's written a story about airlines um, who have, uh, which have already received so many tens of billions of dollars in uh, taxpayer help that maybe it's um, it's already too much. They don't need any more. Dan, um, in, your, in your piece, you point out that U.S. Airlines got a $50 billion lifeline um, last year, last March, and then another $29 billion through the bipartisan uh, year-end relief package and President Biden's stimulus plan. At this point, shouldn't the U.S. government own the U.S. airlines outright?
3: Uh, well, it's, uh, it's great to be with you, Matt. And, uh, and you know, when I think about uh, the amount of support that's been provided to the airlines, uh, I, I think you really have to break it up into what was done during the heart of the panic and then what was done at, uh, at more recent times. And so in the you know, context of the original, uh, the original intervention in March, you know, the, the industry was really in an unprecedented free fall. You know, just to take Delta, which reported this morning, you know, they, they reported this morning that they were actually cash positive in March and, and had access to about $16 billion of liquidity. But in March 2020, in their same morning's report, they were burning $100 million a day, and only had access to $6 million of liquidity. And Delta is you know, widely acknowledged as the, one of the stronger carriers in terms of the financial position amongst the large carriers out there. So we really faced what could potentially be you know, a collapse of the industry uh, or widespread, you know, hugely widespread layoffs that would have come at the worst possible time, both for the labor market and also for our ability to respond to the pandemic. So what we did in, at the end of March, you know, under the leadership of, of Secretary Mnuchin, who is, who is really uh, you know, extraordinary in this period and I think is clearly going to be remembered as one of the great Treasury secretaries in history, uh, is we put together a package that stabilized the airlines in the short term by offering uh, some payroll support. And also provided them access to loans, which had an extremely helpful effect in allowing them to g- gain access to credit markets, where they borrowed very, very successfully over the last year. And the result of that has been that we've kept the airline, that we kept the airline industry together uh, during the hardest part of the pandemic, and uh, and and gotten them through to the other side. Uh, the question now is uh, what should uh, taxpayers do vis-a-vis airlines uh in the near term? and you know i think I think there's little argument based on the financial metrics that we're seeing from the carriers today that they needed another fourteen billion dollars in March. and then there's going to be another fight probably in September uh, when the protections associated with the March uh, taxpayer funds expire over whether they should receive further support. And I think any reasonable observer would say it's time for the government to step back
0: and allow the industry to stand on its own. So, duty. Dan, do you, think the, do you think the industry is out of the woods now?
3: Look, I, I'm not really in a position to accurately forecast what the uh, return of airline demand is going to be like. Uh, You know, certainly there are big issues associated with international travel and also with business travel, which is so important to these carrier strategy. Um, But what I will say is that they're all in a very strong financial position. Most of them are in a very strong financial position. And so management teams, employees are in a position to navigate that future demand curve. uh, And it's time for them to do that in the absence of taxpayer support.
1: I just want to get something you said earlier about Steve Mnuchin. You think he's going to go down as one of the great uh, Treasury secretaries in history, um, owing to his actions during the pandemic bailout. The Paycheck Protection Program has so often been derided as inefficient and and inept at the hands of Steve Mnuchin. Um, What do you think he did that? That merits putting him up along the greats in the in in the Hall of Fame for Treasury secretaries.
3: Well, look, you know, just just quickly to respond to your point on the PPP, uh, I, I think a lot of the news coverage, unsurprisingly, has focused on uh, some of the you know less desirable outcomes uh, as uh, we implemented the program very very quickly. But what. It, Hasn't focused on is the overwhelming speed and success of the vast, vast majority of the program. That that in and of itself, right? The simplicity of getting it out there, the speed of getting it out there, which all, which is always going to involve some execution risk. That that was hugely helpful to stabilizing the economy and keeping workers attached to uh, attached to their healthcare and their and their employers, and also saving you know many many millions of jobs. Uh, at small businesses across the country, so I, I don't, I don't think that's really a fair critique of the PPP. And in terms of the broader legacy, but
1: but, you know, but look, wait, so it, you think it, the PPP was an efficiently used program? All that money um, went to, you're saying, save jobs and keep employee health care, and, and and that's documented?
3: Well, I think that uh, you can, if you nitpick. Find uh, you know relatively small in relation to the entire scale of the program. Uh, issues to include fraud, uh, access by public companies. We're all familiar with the stories out there. But you know, some of my colleagues, Mike Faulkender and Steve Myron, uh, have looked at in a paper they put out at the end of last year. The program on the whole was hugely successful in saving tens of millions of jobs. And so I don't think it's fair to say because there was one news story about Shake Shack or there were a few instances of fraud that the whole program is tarred. I think if you look at the complete record, there's no question that this program was hugely important in protecting the economy through the worst of the pandemic.
0: Dan, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Dan Katz, he's a former senior advisor at the U.S. Treasury Department from 2019 to 2021. He is also a Bloomberg opinion contributor, Uh, Dan Katz. Looking at the market here, Matt, uh, continued strength in this market. We continue to see green on the screen, some positive economic data, and some decent earnings.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The bank earnings picture. Although I guess um, you and Dave Wilson need to sit down over a beer and discuss that. Maybe you can meet in Montclair
0: That's and
1: right. uh, and figure out whether these bank earnings look good or bad. They are definitely they have definitely beaten by a large margin. Um, certainly J P Morgan yesterday and Goldman Sachs, but even today Bank America I thought was really pretty good when they came out with earnings a little bit early. We'll continue to watch the reaction. This is Bloomberg. Uh-oh. Let's take a look at this market uh, holistically.
0: We do that with Chris Wolf. He's a chief investment officer for First Republic Private Wealth Management. They have about $220 billion uh, in assets under management. So Chris, Matt and I were just talking about this market and we're saying, hey, even when you got a big company like a city, like a Bank of America report some really strong numbers, the stock doesn't necessarily move higher. Does that signal maybe a risk for this market that uh, the market's really discounting just a extraordinary earnings and if you don't deliver, you're not going to get paid?
4: Yeah, I I think there's this Symptom here, which is what's going on in the first quarter. And I think a lot of expectations for investors were built up to a pretty high level. So what they're really looking for, I think, is the guidance about the second half or the remainder part of this year. And that guidance has turned out to be just a little bit tepid. It makes sense for folks to offer guidance that's not super bullish right now. So I think investors just built up an expectation that the guidance for the remainder of the year and particularly financials, you know, loan volume and other things would be very strong. And it's just come in a little bit less than expected. I don't read a lot into today's trading that there's a huge risk here. I think what's behind all of it in terms of the economic data is still very strong that we're going to get into a, uh, an earnings season, not just for first quarter, which will be good. But I think it'll be carried through to second and third quarter.
1: Does loan growth have to be strong for you to really expect seven you know, 8% growth this year for you to really expect a pop in 2022. Do people need to be running out and borrowing money for businesses if the economy is going to be growing that that quickly?
4: You know, I think. Look, we wrote a piece a couple of months ago called "The Year of Two Bridges." We thought 2021 was going to require to get through it a healthcare bridge and a stimulus bridge, and boy, do we're getting that in spades. I do think there's some lingering concerns, though, about kind of the variance in COVID, and ultimately the Johnson Johnson vaccine news has been, I think, a little bit challenging. So. Um, I think that healthcare bridge is mostly built, but it's got a ways to go. And the stimulus bridge is just, you know, being built as fast as possible. So why would we use that as an example? Because I think when you're talking about the second, third, and fourth quarter, there's a little bit of caution now. But as sentiment improves, the COVID bridge gets finalized, and we get into a place where there's more infrastructure spending, I think sentiment improves a little bit more, and that releases some of the savings to get you to the 7, 8, 9. And by the way, there's even an outside chance on GDP that you pre- into nine or ten handle uh, in 2021 because of all the stimulus that hasn't been spent yet. A lot of it's been saved. So, to the extent companies looking to run out and borrow money, I think what they're going to be is a little bit cautious uh, and kind of use the first quarter and use the kind of spending story that consumers are going to put up there as sentiment improves as a way to respond to that. But you know, all things told, banks are in a pretty good shape to capture that you know potential loan growth later this year.
0: All right, Chris, as we look at these equity markets here, uh, charging charging, uh, to ever higher highs, what's the biggest Mm -hmm. risk to the equity call right here? You know, I think the biggest, it's really
4: two of them. One is uh, the bridges we just talked about fail for some reason. There's a, a variant, a mutation in the uh, COVID story that we just don't understand yet. The Science suggests that mutations are picking up outside the rest of the world. And that's kind of a, a tale to that story as well. The big surprise has been how weak the vaccine response has been in Europe and other areas of the world. The U.S., despite all of our challenges, is actually leading in this regard. So uh, the risks are that the rest of the world just um, ends up with lots of variants running around and we end up in a reinfection pattern and that's a meaningful one uh, with respect to consumption sentiment and ultimately market multiples Um, you know I think the second piece is more strategic and it's really what's the relationship between US and China uh, right now, it's uh, you know, fairly challenged. There's uh, a, a lot of things that uh, look like uh, China wants to be equal with the U.S. in many ways they are. But the reality is, I think economically, uh, things like digital currencies, for example, changing payment systems represent structural changes that uh, I'm not sure how they're all going to play out. And I think for most investors, I'm not sure they're all bad, but they may represent a change and a big change to the way they think about investing in 2021 and beyond.
1: So what are you saying that China maybe as a command economy um, has a little bit of a lead here in the in the short to near term Oh, with respect to blockchain technology
4: all the way back to the you know mining tracking people side. with
1: covid I mean there's no privacy issues there they they run everything.
4: That, that is absolutely true, but that's their model, and their, their model works to put up GDP numbers you know, fairly consistently. You can believe right. them or not, but the reality is uh, that's where they are. The relationship right. U.S. has with China is important,
1: though. Key, though. All right, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Chris Wolf, there, Chief Investment Officer of First Republic Private Wealth Management, talking to us about the state of the economy as we're in the heart of bank earnings. This is Bloomberg. I want to bring in right now Ken Leone. He's a global director of uh, industry and equity research at CFRA Research, talking to us about what we saw this morning and yesterday um, in terms of bank earnings and what we can expect tomorrow. Ken, first off, um, talk to me about Bank America earnings. They came out early, um, very early. In fact, it was the First time I can remember coming out in the 5 a.m. hour, um, (laughs) Bank of America earnings. They looked good um, initially. Not, you know, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs good, but still pretty good, and yet the stock is off. Why are investors selling it?
5: So Bank of America is more of a commercial bank than a capital markets-driven bank. J.P. Morgan also is kind of a hybrid. Of course, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are all feed in with the capital markets, which we like a lot. Bank of America, then, when you look at the mechanics of how it drives growth and the high investor expectations ahead, has to drive higher net interest income, which means a steepening yield curve. And then it's the U.S. economy. Can we get the consumer and commercial businesses to increase loan activity? Those measures were negative, In the quarter, and that's why the stock is trading down. And the expectations is uh, from the CFO of Bank of America is maybe with a rising yield curve, you know, we can bring back a billion dollars of net interest income that's not there today. So it's a very different profile than a J.P. Morgan, which is a little bit more like an investment bank or the ones we really like with strong buys, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley.
0: So that's interesting, Ken. Because yesterday we had Chris Whalen on, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, and he was making the argument that, you know, when you strip out some of the reserve uh, uh, reversals uh, and some of the capital markets business, the underlying banking business he thinks by year end is going to be in a world of trouble. Is that too bearish from your perspective?
5: It isn't. But most of the bank analysts, so I am a bank analyst, but they, you know, they're siloed and and they they're just seeing we're going to model out a higher net interest income this year and next year. And, you know, what's interesting here is when you look at traditional commercial banks, J.P. Morgan is the only one that has shown positive growth in this category since 2015. Not Wells Fargo, not Bank of America, perhaps not some of the regional banks. So it is tough, but the overall environment works two ways. We have recovery, but you got to see that pull through into the bank metrics I mentioned. And secondly, the risk related to uh, credit risk exposure and loan re- reserves is getting better. And that, that to me is more of a rear mirror conversation, more in front of us when we were talking about this last year.
1: JP Morgan still down, uh, off today seven tenths of a percent. It fell yesterday 1.9 percent. It was down on Tuesday 1.2 percent, down on Monday two tenths of a percent. I mean, investors this week just don't like this bank. Um, has it just run too far too fast?
5: You know, uh, so I've been covering these banks for over 10 years, and I've never seen JP Morgan, even when they have blowout quarter, um, where the stock goes up. And in this case, though, they had the window dressing, as you've mentioned, of these loan loss reserves, which boost earnings. But overall, this is best-in-class commercial bank, J.P. Morgan, and they have a bigger exposure to the investment bank. Um, I would say that, you know, over the long term, uh, listeners should view J.P. Morgan as a very attractive, uh, large-cap core holding in their portfolio.
0: So, Ken, as you're talking to your clients um, during this period, what are your top picks that you're uh, pushing?
5: It, you know, financials have done so well. So, for yeah. portfolios, thinking about sectors, and we had BlackRock and Schwab today as well. Uh, Schwab's down today. These are these are phenomenal, world-class franchises, um, and I think if it gets to being a stock picking world, which is what we do too. Um, I'm going to stay with the capital markets, uh, given we're in a, a risk-on environment and low rate. Um, you're going to hear this loud and clear from Morgan Stanley tomorrow on great results, and Goldman Sachs had a grand slam. It wasn't a home run. It was a grand slam, uh, and that's where we are with strong buys. Um, to the negative point of the other analysts you mentioned, we also have a sell recommendation on Wells Fargo. I don't think they have uh, the, the real turn of positive interest to income generation that they really need and loan activity because their franchise was hurt by yep. some of the sales pra- practices they had. Uh, that's yep. where we are.
0: Hey, Ken, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts uh, this time of the quarter when we have the big banks uh, putting up their numbers. Ken Leone, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research, been covering the banks for about a decade. And it's interesting, Matt, favoring those uh, the big investment banks as opposed to perhaps some of the more commercial banks Um So that seems to be the way that he's looking at it right here. And Goldman Sachs gets his strong buy rating. And again, as you pointed out, Matt, the, the banks, you know, maybe priced in to perfection, you know, buy on the rumor, sell on the news type of thing here as
1: they report their numbers. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.